0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Marty Judah. This is a very uh, exciting portion of uh, the Torah, the second song of Moses. Um, I quite honestly uh, would say, and this is a commentary that comes from the Jewish commentary, had these words actually been written by another prophet in another part of the book, they probably would be heralded throughout the world as some of the greatest prophetic words ever written. But because they come at the end of the Torah, because they're the humdrum of Moses saying it over and over again, they somehow get lost in the dross of our spiritual hearts not really paying attention to. But it truly is a crescendo teaching piece that goes with the Torah. As you've heard me share before, in this assembly and over the years, as I've taught about Torah, that I believe that the Torah, although it is primarily an instruction about that one generation that came out of Egypt, it's also intended for another generation that will be at the end of the ages. And this is the classic argument that puts this Torah in context for the modern man. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 15, it flatly and explicitly says, that the tribulation saint will sing two songs of great deliverance. One, the song of Moses two, the song of the Lamb. What song of Moses is it that Revelation is making reference to? This one, this passage of scripture that is for this Shabbat. Why is it that this particular passage of scripture is always and has always been taught between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Because Rosh Hashanah, brethren, as you know, symbolizes the great sounding of the trumpet, the next great event in God's plan, which is the resurrection and the rapture. And immediately following is the day of the Lord, God's final judgment upon the earth, pictured by Yom Kippur in this Sunday night. When we assemble for Yom Kippur, we come to afflict our souls, to fast. There's no celebration whatsoever. Because there's nothing to celebrate when God has to judge mankind. In fact, the scripture teaches us that we are to keep silent as the Lord renders judgment upon his enemies. And therefore, Yom Kippur is the day that we draw silently before the Lord. And this span of 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur are the days of awe, as I've said to you before. The teaching is that in these days, God's eyes are moving to and fro over the earth, deciding who shall live and who shall die. And what is the teaching that goes hand in hand with the days of awe? The song of Moses. So it's quite an interesting song that we have here. Now, if if you have read through it as I have had before, you read straight through it and it sounds like any other normal biblical passage. In other words, it just reads and flows and goes one for one subject to the next subject to the next subject. And then somehow somewhere it ends. And there's really not a lot to be gleaned from it. And part of the reason why people struggle with that to glean it is because they fail to take it into account. It's really a song. And in every song, there is a structure. And by understanding that structure, you then don't read it in a linear fashion, but you read it in what we call an integrated fashion. In other words, in a song, and in this particular song, it has three stanzas, just like the music that we've been singing earlier tonight. We read through verses and then through choruses, and then sometimes we repeat those over, and, we, and you would know that the melody, which is consistent with each of the stanzas, that if your mind, as you're singing the song, you know that at the first words of the next verse, as we call the stanza, that that melody interlocks that particular part of the song with the first part of the first stanza with the following stanzas. And so in in a sense, there is a matrix that cuts through this song. That's the key to understanding what this song is about. It's not to read it just linearly through, but it's to understand that there's a horizontal path through this song that certain verses relate in parallelism to other verses. And when you see those verses line up and paralyze in a parallelism uh, manner, then there's another wisdom, another essence of the message that starts to come out. And that's what I hope to do tonight. It's going to be a little difficult because I don't have a board up here to show you the matrix of the verses, but if you'll follow closely, I think that we can show you where the, where the items are at. In fact, the way the sages break this teaching up is is that in in chapter 32, the first three verses are the introduction to the song. It's like a, a prologue to it. Then there are three stanzas to the song. The first stanza is from verse 4 through 15. The second is verse 16 through 27. The third is verse 28 through 39. And then we have an epilogue to the song, a conclusion to the song, which is verses 40 through 43. Let me read through very quickly. For those of you who may be listening and, and uh, with your scripture, let's just go through the straight reading of it. And then we're going to go back and look at those other, this other matrix of how the song is structured. And you're going to see something rather interesting emerge. Chapter 32, beginning at verse one, the song of Moses Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass and as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he they have acted corruptly toward him they are not his children because of their defect but are a perverse and crooked generation do you thus repay the lord o foolish and unwise people is not he your father who brought bought you he has made you and established you remember the days of old consider the years of all generations ask your father and he will inform you your elders and they will tell you When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness he encircled him, he cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field. And he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and rams and the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. To gods whom they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their ends shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use arrows on them. They shall be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword shall bereave and inside terror both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man of gray hair. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misjudge, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, and the Lord has not done all of this. For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this, for their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants When he sees that their strength is gone and there's none remaining bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fact of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their libation? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal There's no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations! With his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Thus ends the song of Moses. The key to understanding the song of Moses, again, is to relate to it as a song. If somehow you could capture the melody. Now, we don't have that here in the Torah. And it's not the kind of song that really is intended where you bring the musician up and he conjures up a melody. It's rather to take the words in their melodic form and put them together and see the parallelism and see what the Lord is really trying to say. And to do that, the key to it, like I said, is understanding the stanzas. Now, let me walk you through the first one so you get a sense of what we're doing. There are four sections to each of the stanzas. In section number one, it's verses four through six. The same section in the second stanza is verses 16 through 18. And on the third stanza, that same section is 28 through 30. There is a clue. If you will take verses four through six, match them with verses 16 through 18 Matching them with verses 28 through 30, something emerges that you didn't see in the song before. Let me read the verses again to you in that first section. Beginning at verses 4 through 6. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who brought, bought you? He has made you and established you. Moving to the second stanza, see what is parallel now to this section. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 through 18, we're going to find follows verses 4 and 6. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they had not known, new gods who came lately, whom your father did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. I don't know if you detected it, but right off the bat, you see the parallel, the word the rock? In the first stanza, the rock His work is perfect. But in the second stanza, it's talking about it. It says you've neglected the rock. He's perfect and you're with fault. You're crooked and perverse because you've neglected the rock. You've neglected the thing which is perfect. The third verse with the same section is chapter 32, verses 28 through 30. See if this rock theme doesn't stick through on this message. For they are a nation lacking in counsel. There's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? You see that little section there about the rock? And what it's trying to show you is this is just the first taste of this song. This little melody we now see going through the three stanzas, what is in parallel in those first sections is about an identification of God and God being discarded. From the very beginning, if you look back at the history of Israel, from the moment that they crossed over the River Jordan, that was the mistake they made every mistake found in the history of Israel, every mistake found within those who call themselves the spiritual people of God, the first step of your mistake is you neglect the rock. You forget that he's perfect. You choose something else. You go in a different path than the one he has laid out before And then the question is always lingering. How do we have wisdom? How do we understand truth and the right way to go? How do we know the will of God? I can tell you right now, brethren, it's not by rejecting God. That's not how you will find truth and knowledge and understanding. Obviously, it's by following God. Are those things going to be found? If you look at the history of Israel, it is dotted and punctuated throughout its history When they followed God, things went well. When they didn't and they turned away from God, things didn't go so well. And in the course of our lives, it is my testimony, and I'm sure the testimony of many seated here, that they could stand up and tell you, Brethren, I can tell you, when I was walking with the Lord, my life was better. And when I wasn't walking with the Lord, it wasn't so good. And thus, we individually can bear the same testimony that Israel has had corporately and as a nation. Let's go a little bit further with the second section so you can see how this begins to mature and take shape. In the second section, again we'll look at the first stanza, the second and then the third as to the structure. In the first in the second stanza, or excuse me, in the first stanza and the second section of thought, beginning at verses seven through nine. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. You notice that the subject shifts now not to the person of God, but to the sons of Israel. To the sons of God. Verses 19 through 21. And the Lord saw, this is of the second stanza. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then they said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They provoke me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Do You see the theme, the sons coming up. There are sons and daughters, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. And faithfulness, as we've learned from the Torah, is believing in the promises of God. If you have rejected the rock. If you rejected the person of God, then obviously you're not going to believe in his promises. And therefore you have no faith. You walk not by the faith of believing the promise of God, but you walk by your sight. Not believing the promise of God. Now, this third one in the third verse becomes even more poignant on this point about the sons. Verses 31 through 33. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Didn't see the word sons, did you? It's been replaced. Instead of sons, he's saying they're snakes. They've become like snakes. Instead of being of the true olive tree, they're the vine of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of being sons, they're serpents. And so the theme is from sons who reject God who become like snakes. And that's the parallelism that is there. The third section. Verses 10 through 12. He found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. Now, a little explanation needs to be given because there's a big metaphor that God is using here. We just saw the metaphor before about sons becoming serpents and snakes. You know what the greatest enemy of snakes is? An eagle. An eagle. The greatest opposite of the snake is the eagle. The eagle can come down and take on virtually any snake there is. He uses his wings to shield off their strikes and his pinions are able to just tear them apart. And in this particular passage of verses 10 through 12, God likens himself unto a great eagle and how he has cared for Israel and how he does care for Israel. And he actually goes through and describes something that is not well known by most people about eagles, but let me fill you in on the metaphor so you can get the sense of what he's he's doing. There in verse 10 through 12 he says he's encircled him. You've seen the great eagle as it flies and soars above that when it begins to home in, it it begins to go in in a great circular path. It uses the wind currents to stay aloft, and he encircles over and watches over. The eagle's eyes are very special in that the normal part of the eye is like unto ours, but then there's a focused lens in the center which is almost telescopic. In fact, it is telescopic. And some uh, animal scientists say that an eagle can see with precision. You and I can see right in front of us. He can see from a quarter of a mile away. He can focus in on that distance and see exactly that object. And in effect, the Lord says, I have an eye upon you like that. In the great blessing, the ironic blessing, we always ask when the Lord sees you, may he get a smile. He can see you from a long ways away. And when he sees you, let him focus in on you. Lift up his countenance to see you. Draw his attention to you. To be gracious to you. And thus the metaphor of the eagle. Is likened unto that. In fact he says he guarded him. As the pupil of his eye. He literally focused that eye right on Israel. Focused. Although he can see all things around him. He's pinpointed his eye right there to Ocus. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. That hovers over its young. He spread out his wings. And cut them. The interesting thing about eagles is when they go to train the young to fly, then they build nests way up at high places. At high precipice. When an eagle gets ready to train its young to fly, they knock them out of the nest. Or they'll get them to get up on their back and they take off. And they go flying. And here's this young eaglet hanging on for dear life and it comes loose. And it's in the air and it's way high up and it starts to fall and it's trying to teach him to spread his wings out. That little eaglet will never hit the ground because the big eagle will watch. And if he sees he's getting ready to hit all the way to the ground, he literally swoops down and puts his positions himself underneath him so he can grab onto, literally catches him on his wing. Or if need be, he'll grab him with his pinions. And taking back to the nest. You can imagine the fright that the young eaglet goes through learning to fly. (laughs) Being thrown out of the nest. Screaming toward the earth at 45 miles an hour. And somehow getting caught in the middle of the air before you hit the ground. And at some point they learn to spread their wings and they fly. And in the same way it says that God in the same tender loving care has been doing this with Israel. I can assure you that when Israel was in the wilderness and didn't have too much to drink and nothing to eat, they probably were wondering, where are you, God? In fact, that was their number one complaint. Where are you, God? That's like the eaglet falling down through the sky. Where are you? And it says that the scripture says that he intentionally made Israel to suffer hunger and to suffer thirst so that they might learn. Not to follow, not to chase after the bread of men, but to chase after the word of God that comes forth from Him. And in the same way, the eagle has to learn to fly, and so he is trained and instructed. And as it says, he spread his wings and caught them; he carried them on his pinions. In other words, he kicked them out of the nest. He made them get out of their comfort zone. He made them to learn to fly. And quite honestly, brethren. The same can be compared to us. The scripture tells us that God is constantly trying to teach us to walk by faith, not by our side. I'm telling you that that walking by faith is not a natural thing for the natural man. I would much rather use my eyes and, and, and other things and be in control. But when you're walking by faith, you're just taking the word of God and you're saying, I believe and I'm going to go forward with it and I'm going to trust him. It's going to happen. He's going to bless me. I'm going to do it. It's going to be all right. That's a real scary feeling while you're free falling. That you'll be caught. That you won't be smashed on the bottom. That disaster will not come to you. And sometimes God will kick you out of your nest. Scares the living daylights out of you when he does that. But you won't hit the ground. He will catch you. He'll either catch you by his pinions or suddenly he'll be underneath you and you'll hang on and he'll bring you back. We're supposed to be learning to spread out our wings and to fly. This talit, this symbol, did you know that when we hold it out like this, it's called the wings? The wings of the Lord on his tally. And that we're supposed to walk by faith on these wings. And so it's a little bit like the analogy of flying, the eagle flying, as opposed to upon your legs, the way that you would normally think. This section three now extending to the second stanza, let's see how the metaphor carries forward. Verses. 22 through 24 it gets very interesting for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest parts of Sheol hell and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. You know what the greatest test of faith is that's going to come? It's when all the believers, the last generation, are thrust out of the nest of comfortable Christianity into the free fall we're going to call the Great Tribulation. You talk about a scary ride. The words that have been said of the great tribulation challenge everything that you would walk normally by sight. What shall we eat? Where shall we live? How shall we be safe? Where will we go? What will we do? How will we avoid the enemy? And by the way, we've all heard the spies' reports. Well, there's some really bad dude there, the Antichrist. He'll be in charge of the whole place. He's going to make everybody take a mark thing, and you can't buy or sell without that. Oh, my goodness, if I can't buy or sell, how can I live? How will my family be provided for? And the real question is, do you now believe with all of those things taken away and God pouring out all of his judgments that he can deliver you? You remember the analogy of the eaglet falling through the air? The ground is approaching quickly. Will I be caught? Will I be safe? Or will I go headlong into this mess? You know, the real problem with uh, falling is that falling doesn't hurt you. It scares you, but it doesn't hurt you. As I In my most recent professional career, one of the things I had to explain to all these engineers at the radar site that falling off a 40-meter tower did not hurt you. It was the impact with the ground below that would hurt you. While you're falling, there's no problem until you come to that last moment. And in in a sense, when most believers look at the issues of the Great Tribulation, and the reason I mention that is because the four great judgments... Of the great tribulation are listed here in verses 22 through 24. The problem with going through the great tribulation, they think that simply being there is the trauma and the bad part. No, that's like falling. The trauma and the bad part is the impact at the bottom. Is the impact point. That's where there would be trouble. And God only needs to deliver you from the impact point for you to be saved. What is the impact point of the great tribulation? It all leads to one moment called the day of the Lord. And that's Yom Kippur. The Lord will have to somehow deliver you before the day of the Lord. And by the way, we have a promise from God that says you will be delivered. He says the wrath of God is not stored up for us. It's stored up for someone else. And that's a promise. But do we trust and do we believe? Can we believe that God would allow us to enter into the great tribulation going through those days? The f- great freefall of mankind toward the judgment of God. And somehow at the last moment before the impact point, here comes the wings of the great eagle and he swoops in and he takes you out. And there's no impact for you but there is for the rest of the world. You see the analogy? You see it carrying through? Let me show you another way the prophet describes this to us from Ezekiel chapter 14. Using these same words that Moses uses, the prophet Ezekiel describes the impending judgments that are spoken of here by Moses. Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Four times the prophet Ezekiel will explain these great judgments. Ezekiel 14, beginning at verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroying its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast... Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. What that verse is saying is is that if God decides on this nation, on this people, on this world, I'm going to send a famine, nobody's spared except maybe three guys, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Only they are spared. They have no power to spare anyone else. Why would, first of all, would the prophet mention Noah, Daniel, and Job? They are the three men who symbolize the deliverance of God. Noah was delivered from God's worldwide judgment upon the whole world by the flood. Noah was delivered. Worldwide judgment. Daniel, the judgment of the king, If the king says, I'm going to exact judgment upon you, only he could be delivered. Job, from Satan himself. You remember the story of Job, how Satan went down and inflicted the punishments upon Job, trying to prove that he would break faith with God. And so it was the punishment, it was the oppression of Satan himself. So what is the great tribulation supposed to be, brethren? It's the judgment from God upon all of the world. It will be the judgment of a certain antichrist who will act as king of the world. And it will be the judgment of Satan himself cast from heaven down to the earth. All three of them all wrapped up. And he says that if I put a judgment of famine on him, only those three type men could be delivered. Let me go a little bit further. Verse 15, if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulated and it became desolate so that no one could pass through it because of the beast. Though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. If I put the judgment of wild beasts to attack mankind, he says only three men would be able to make it and they wouldn't have the power to deliver even their own sons or daughters. That's how powerful my judgment is. If I send the judgment of wild beasts, he goes a step further. Verse seventeen: If I were to bring sword on that country and say, "Let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast," even though these three men were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they cannot deliver either the sons or the daughters, but they alone would be delivered. If I bring sword on, is the same thing. Noah, Daniel, Job—they could be delivered. Those are men who've been delivered before in the past. They would be delivered, but they wouldn't be able to deliver anyone else. No one else would be able to go with it. And finally, he brings the last one, which is verse 19, the plague. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath in blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son nor their daughter They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. And then he concludes by saying the following. Now that's each individual judgment. Plague, sword or destruction, wild beast. And he says... For the Lord God says, verse 21, how much more then, when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague to cut off man and beast. What if I put all four of them on at the same time? Would that change anything? If only Noah, Daniel, and Job can get out of any one of the judgments, is it going to change anything significant if I put all four judgments at the exact same moment on Jerusalem? Is it going to make it any easier? Obviously not. The reason I point that out to you is not only is Moses specifically referring to these judgments as saying this is when God's fire will be kindled with anger, but if you were to go to Revelation chapter 6, you would find that in the fourth seal, these are the exact four judgments put upon mankind that it says upon the day that they are put on mankind, one quarter of mankind dies. Now, there's six billion plus people in the world. One quarter. Hmm, That's a little over a billion people. A billion. The world's never seen anything like that. The worst this world has ever seen is maybe 200 million. Even the world wars haven't come up with that one. Worse than anything we've ever seen. Worse than anything we've ever imagined. Exactly as the prophets say, there will be a time of distress as the world has never seen before. That's what Moses is talking about. Ezekiel is talking about in the book of Revelation. It's all characterized by these four judgments. Now I want to show you something really fantastic. I think one of the most powerful, most encouraging, most positive prophecies in all of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 22. And I love this word, Yet. Whoa, what? I thought this matter was decided. Then he says, behold. And you know that the word behold, anytime we hear the prophet speaking of, it is like that moment in which that you've taken a, a wonderful prize, a treasure, a gift. You gift wrapped it. You put it in front of their hands. You've told, close your eyes, close your eyes. Now open your eyes, open your eyes, see it. See this thing that will come forth. Behold, listen to this. Survivors. Survivors? Survivors will be left in it. Who will be brought out? Both sons and daughters. What kind of survivors are these? They're not like Noah, Daniel, or Job. Because Noah, Daniel, and Job's righteousness is only able to deliver themselves. They can't even take their own sons or daughters. What righteousness is it? What group of survivors is he talking about that have the power not only for them to be delivered, but for sons and daughters and many to be delivered? What group is that? It is a group not yet described. It's a ministry not yet shown, but it is a ministry, it is a group that is far and away better than anything that you understand Noah, Daniel, and Job to be. A deliverance that will be so mighty that in the midst of God's judgments that no one is able to survive, they are able to survive. It's like what Revelation chapter six says right at the end. Who can stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? When they see the sign of him coming, who can possibly stand? The heathen will cry it out. Nobody will be able to survive this. The answer is given in chapter 7. And it describes two groups. The first is a sealed set of sons of Israel, 144,000 in number, 12,000 from each of the tribes. They will be able to stand. And with them, sons and daughters. Another group called tribulation saints. And of their number, they said they couldn't number them. They will stand. They will be stuffed standing after the day of the wrath of the Lamb. After those great judgments, they will still be there. Because they will have been caught on the wings of the great eagle. And lifted up and there will be no impact for them. They are the ones that belong to the nest, that belong to the King that belong to the kingdom. They are the ones who are going to make it. Now, it may look there for a little bit like they're free-falling and like they're going to be caught up with everyone else. But they have promises from God. And they will not have forgotten the Lord. And the Lord will not have forgotten them. And the Lord is not in the business of abandoning his people. And it will be proved like never before. Not like the case of Noah, Daniel, or Job, but by the case of those called tribulation saints. Not like the case of Noah, Daniel, or Job, but by the case of those called tribulation saints. Now, brethren, I have news for you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Uh, You know, many of you have uh, looked at the Bible and looked at the various characters of the stories of how God has revealed to us. And said to yourself, my, that was uh, Abraham. He he was a, quite a stature of a fellow. I mean, the way he left uh, his father's house, the city of Ur, the way he came and he got this promise, the way he took his son, Isaac, and obeyed the Lord, and how God through Isaac and his descendants, they became as the stars of the heaven, and how Israel came out of Egypt, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the, the making of the movie Ten Commandments, and, and Charlton Heston, and all that stuff. And maybe you never compared yourself with any of them. Maybe you said, oh, I can't possibly do that. I mean, those those are great, great men of faith. I have news for you. The Bible clearly says that the end time saints, the last generation of saints shall do far and away exceedingly more in showing forth the glory of God than all the previous prophets and saints before. They will be used by God to show the glory of God to the whole world. Now, brethren... We are that people. We are that generation. Now maybe I looked out over the audience and maybe you've been looking over this way and you didn't see no Abraham or Isaac or Noah or Daniel or Job. You weren't supposed to. You are supposed to be seeing somebody that's going to be more than that. That when the revelation of Yeshua begins, there is a grace to be brought into us that will be far greater than any grace that has ever been brought to mankind before. There will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the world has never seen before. That thing that happened back at the day of Pentecost, back 2,000 years ago, was a forerunner, a foretaste of what's supposed to be happening. Because back there in those days, there were men who received the Holy Spirit and they became leaders and elders and teachers. But this one, it says, even your sons and daughters are going to get it. And this when you're even your sons and daughters are going to be prophesying and they will be delivered too. Not just holy men delivered, but holy men and sons and daughters will be delivered also. There is a much greater destiny. That is before us. And Moses is trying to refer to this great contrast of God's great plan, of what he wanted to use Israel for, and yet still how God will use the remnant of Israel to still accomplish his purposes. In the last section, the last stanza of this third section, it's verses 34 through 36, and this is how he brings this together. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. And retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people. And will have compassion on his servants. What he, When he sees that their strength is gone. And there's none remaining, bond or free. Now there's no question about it. That the great tribulation is spoken of by the prophets. That it will be a time in which that Satan will come to oppress the saints and wear them down. Like the eaglet who's falling from the sky and is getting closer and closer to that impact point and is saying, there's nothing left I'm going to hit. And the Lord says, no, you will not. It will look close, but I will be there just before your strength is gone. I will be there and I will vindicate My people, I will have compassion upon my servants. And the word vindicates one of those wonderful uh, 59 cent words. Let me give you more definition for it. The word vindicate means I will be a strong defense for. And I will prove. you. When I come to your aid and vindicate you, there won't be any more argument left. You will have won. I will have defended you perfectly. From the danger that was before you. And yes, there is a day of calamity coming. There is a day of great judgment that is coming. But it's not for you. But you will see it. You will see the wicked destroyed and judged. The scripture says. You will see it with your eyes. But it will not hit you. Because the servants of the Lord are protected and vindicated by God. This is the great hope of Israel, that no matter how bad we mess it up, that the Lord will deliver us, that the Lord will come through for us. And this is our great hope and our great promise that we have of our God, that no matter what we do in our faith, as long as we'll stick to the rock, as long as we'll ascribe to God, as long as we'll look to Him, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what it looks like to us, we will be delivered. We will be vindicated. We will receive the compassion of God. We will make it. Even though we're in the midst of God's own judgments poured out upon the earth, which he says that no man can escape. Even then. He says, not only will you be delivered, but your sons and daughters will be delivered with you. At the same time. Everybody getting excited? Fourth section. Verses 13 through 15. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock, oil from the plenty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock, with fat lambs and rams and the breeds of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. But Yesharun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. From the second stanza, verses 25 through 27. Outside the sword shall bereave and inside terror, both young men and virgin. The nursling with the man of gray hair. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misjudge, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done all this. From the third stanza, verses 37 through 39. Where is their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their libation? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place and see now that I... Am he there is no God besides me. it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who healed, and there's no one who can deliver from my hand. This last section deals with and brings to the point of who's God now, brethren, when the great tribulation comes, even though you sit confidently. In this seat before me at the moment, and you say, I trust the Lord, the living God, the one who created heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Yeshua and the apostles. Even though you sat here, I tell you the days are coming when you will hear the word of the anti Messiah. And your heart will flutter for a moment when he proclaims that he really is the one true God. And that the other God that we're referring to is a God up in heaven who is an evil God. Whose only desire is to come to the earth and destroy the whole place and kill mankind. And the Antichrist, the anti-Messiah, will say, I'm here to save you. I'm here to help you. To give you life." He... That other God up there wants to kill us. And you'll say, oh my goodness, wait a minute, that, that's what our God's supposed to be saying. You know, that's what, that's what the God from heaven said. Now, now this guy, he's imitating, he's saying the same thing. It won't really strike home until your neighbor says to you, uh, do you believe in that God up in heaven? You know, Yeshua. You know, the one, the God of Israel. Is that the God you believe in? And you'll say, yes. A little reluctant, but you'll finally get it out there. And then he will ask you, is your God getting ready to come to the earth and kill us? Destroy this whole place? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then when they say, well, why is your God so much better? Why don't we choose this God who's going to save us? Who wants us all to live? Your God wants to kill us. That God over there, he wants to save us. What are you going to say then? Particularly when they rise up and they're willing to kill you because you believe in that God. Because they think you're kind of encouraging him along. I mean, you're always worshiping him and praising him and trying to boost his spirit. And you want him to come back and judge the whole place. and take over. You can understand why they might hate you. Then it will be a real interesting world to live in, won't it? Real interesting neighborhood to be in. That's what we're about to face. And the question is going to be, well, whose God is going to deliver who? Which God has the power to deliver? Because the Antichrist will be saying that he's going to deliver the world from a vengeful God coming from heaven. In fact, that's the whole idea behind Armageddon. The whole whole deal on Armageddon is Antichrist is going to convince the armies of the world to go to this valley to try to kill God on return. As stupid as that sounds, that's actually what the world's going to do. They think they're actually going to have a chance. What is it that they are believing in that would make them think that they could possibly pull that off? An anti-messiah who will be able to do signs and wonders. A false prophet confirming him. Who can make fire come from heaven. Then what are we going to believe in? Are we going to still believe... And the God of heaven and earth who's launching these great judgments upon the earth. When all we have standing for us is a promise that says that the wrath of God is not stored up for us, that He will deliver us, that He'll be able to distinguish us from all the different peoples of the world and He knows who are His servants and who are His people. And and after you see some of those first judgments come down there and whack out about a third of the trees of the earth or a third of the ocean, then you're going to be wondering, gee, how does He really know where I'm at? And how is it that he's so accurate in his shot? And how do you know he won't get us by accident? How do we know that God will deliver my sons and daughters? It'll be a a frightening time. It'll be a lot more than just the eaglet falling out of the nest going toward the ground. Because you'll be wondering. And the reason why it says that the tribulation saints will be a very interesting group of saints, and they're likened unto the previous generation of the Torah, is the thing that really marked that generation of the Torah, the thing that made that generation stand out different from all other generations was they stood at the base of the mountain. They saw the fire and the smoke. They felt the earth move and the mountain shake. They heard the sound of the great shofar sound. And then they heard the voice of the living God. And it's like what has been said of that generation. There has never been a people who have ever stood together and heard, all of them, heard the voice of God. No other religion and no other people can lay claim to it. Save one last generation. Whom will stand together and not only see the fire. They will see a fire and a light coming in the universe that will be brighter than the sun. They will see not only the mountains shaken. They will see the heavens shaken. They're going to see stars blown out of their orbits by the very presence of God coming toward the earth. It says the stars will be fleeing from him like unripe figs. Shaken loose. And they too will hear the voice of the living God. That's what compares the last generation to that generation in the wilderness. That's the reason why Moses wrote a song. To connect that generation in the future with the generation before. And to draw it to the end of the age. He concludes it in bringing all this together. By saying, this is how the Lord will answer all of this. This will be the great answer to the question of those days. Verses 40 through 43. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance upon my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of the servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. And the key phrase there that is followed by the prophets, if you would turn with me to Ezekiel 21, is this sword. That when the Lord brings forth this particular sword. Ezekiel 21, beginning at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and speak against the sanctuaries and prophesy against the land of Israel. And this is a prophecy applicable to this very day. And say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you. And I shall draw out my sword out of its sheath and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked because I shall cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, my sword shall go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus, all flesh will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. And it will come about that when you say, When they say to you, why do you groan that you will say because of the news that is coming and every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say a sword, a sword sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished. To flash like lightning. There will be a sword. That will flash like lightning. Now let me show you as a concluding passage from Revelation chapter 19. This is the vision that it says the last generation will see. Revelation 19 beginning at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so as that he might smite the nations. We are the people who will see the sword. We are the people who will finally see the final answer to this conflict. Who really is the one true God? Is it the one that we trust in or is it the one that will come? Is it another God that maybe is about the earth who is offering deliverance or a way of life, a religion? The issue is getting ready to be decided. And the Lord says that the issue will be decided first in Jerusalem and will spread to the world. We're going to make this decision. We're going to be part of this decision. We who are believers of God... We have been taught that we need to call upon the name of the Lord now. Not then in that day, but now. Call upon the name of the Lord and begin to believe in this God now. And to learn that he has made promises and that we can believe and trust him. And to understand his great plan. So that when the days of trauma, the days of calamity come that we will not be those who are have spirits fainting or who are weak-kneed or have limp hands, but rather we'll be the ones that others will be coming up and asking, what is the reason of peace in your life? How is it that you believe in this God so strongly? Because the world will be desperate to find the right God to believe in. And we're going to have to do it In the face of the enemy pursuing us and trying to convince the world with every falsehood there is possible. And it won't be easy. I have shared with most people that most of us have made our confession of faith generally in a pleasant and peaceful place. Many of you probably earlier in your life were given the opportunity to make a confession of faith and you came into an assembly that was maybe like this one and and when you got up there and you were dealing with all your personal fears and trepidation and whether or not you could trust the Lord and, and whether or not you could even weather the embarrassment or whatever it is that you were emotionally experiencing. But then when you finally got up here and you finally made your confession and you finally admitted. That you wanted to trust in the Lord, why everybody was there to greet you. They had smiles. They were, you know, shaking your hand. They applauded. They welcomed you. It was wonderful. And since then, you've met with other brethren who are glad to see you and greet you and receive you well. And our confession of faith has been under the most pleasant conditions. But, brethren, there's a day coming when some of us may have to make our confession of faith and you'll be brought in by chains and you'll be compelled. And maybe you won't have all your clothes on. And maybe it will be embarrassing. And maybe you'll know that if you confess this time, it's your life at stake. I tell you, you need to make that second confession every bit as strong as you made the first one. You need to continue to believe and trust that even then, The wings of the great eagle will come down and capture you. And he will deliver you. And he will be your vindication. And prove that he is your God. In these days, the days of awe. Between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These are the days that we are to reflect. To think deeply. What do we believe? Why do we believe Who are we and who's God? The Lord is looking about to see who is with him. Who wants to choose life? And who will shrink away as a coward to choose death? Now, up to this point, brethren, in time, we've been very fortunate to live in a peaceful place with pleasantness. But we know that the prophecy says that there's a day coming when the whole world will be tried. And we're going to be in that world when it's tried, And those judgments, they're going to be falling all around us. And we're going to have to believe even more then that it's not chosen for us, but that we've chosen the right God. So as we come to terms with that God's judgment is certain, we also come to terms with as to whom we're going to choose and whom we're going to believe in. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you again for this season. Thank you for our new year leading us up to the Day of Atonement. Lord, that we might remember that you are our covering, our atonement. You're our God. Not other gods, not other things of the world, not even those that would falsely represent themselves as you. We choose you, Lord. He who chose us. He who created us the heavens and the earth, and he who has a great plan and will be king forever. And Lord, we choose to be your servants. And we desire, Lord, to be found in you, covered by your wings, protected by your defense. Lord, look within our hearts in these days and see if there be any way that needs to be improved and corrected. Look into our hearts and see that we need to clean up the mess and get our house in order before you to be found to be your servants. And as we approach Yom Kippur, Lord, I would pray that on this congregation that you'd minister to our hearts, leading and guiding us, Lord, to walk uprightly before you. And Lord, as we complete the rest of the cycle of our holidays this season, that we thank you, Lord, for all the preparation that's been done Help us, Lord, as we go through it, to learn, to value these lessons. Help us, Lord, to be your people as you would have us to be. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Line and Land Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is post office box 720 968 Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.LionLamb.net. Thank you.